This is, unquote, the least contentious peanut gallery in history. I'm Cooper Powers. Happy Sunday, everybody. Welcome back to Unquote. It's a seminal classic this week. The gothic horror film Dracula was released in 1931. This movie was Bela Lugosi's debut as the infamous Count Dracula, and it's a role that would loom over him like a vampiric miasma. His character, the cultural icon of an era, was typecast as a villain until his retirement from filmmaking in 1956. Our line this week comes at the outset of the madness and horror, approximately 10 minutes into the film. Renfield, an unwary fly caught in the Count's web, has just entered the castle, that mournful place, and is on his way up the staircase when he catches a wolf's cry in the twilight. The Count, with a sly smile and breathy admiration, utters, Listen to them, children of the night. What music they make. Consider the mind of Renfield, not given to believing in fairy tales and legends, suddenly faced with the inexplicable. Bats leading horses and carriage? Spectral movement and appearances? Communication with feral beasts seemed like the writing on the parapet for Renfield in terms of his uncertainty of proposed Transylvanian myths. This week I sat down with Brandon, a true-blooded Dracula fan. We talked about other reputable lines, source material fidelity, comic relief in the weirdest places, and a potential offshoot of Unquote. Enjoy, if you dare. Uh, Brandon Jones, welcome to the Unquote Podcast, man. Glad to have you on. Yeah, very good to be with you. Yeah, and uh, you, you've, you've uh, heard some of the episodes before, and so you're not you're not a stranger that uh, how this works or what we're all about, but this week we're going to be talking about Dracula, the 1931 classic, genre-defining even, horror film. And we both watched it last night to refresh our memories, and we both took some notes. You got anything right off the bat that you, you want to say? You know, they probably did not plan for as much comic relief as I was getting yesterday <laughs> watching it. Um, it's, it's timeless in the sense of the genre, but from, a, from an audience's perspective, it can be a little comical in some aspects. You're right. That's right. But, they, you know, they still hit all of the emotional notes that I think they were trying to hit. It still is very much worth seeing. And you certainly can see where a lot of other filmmakers have relied on the film. I mean, it's 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 iconic and virtually every line, whether you've seen it recently or not, you remember. And right. so in that sense, it's well worth revisiting. I was trying to impress upon my brother and sister as I was watching. I was sending them furious texts. I was like, guys, guys, you got to see this. It's classic, and it's actually not so bad. The wire work for the bats is comical. Brandon has a point. But other than that, it's, it's pretty timeless, you know? Absolutely. Well, the movie came out on February 14th. Maybe not the perfect date movie for, for very uh, – very uh, feeble audiences back then who were pro- who were much prone to fainting than they are now, I think. You know, it's funny you mentioned fainting. One of the real moments of comic relief during the film is when the, I, I suppose she was the maid at the Dr. Seward's house. Whenever she faints, that's, that's <laughs> one of the better parts that you'll find. Right. You know, not a good date movie also because this was released in 1931, which was right smack dab in the middle of the Great Depression. Crash had taken place two years earlier, and so folks probably didn't have a whole lot of money for date movies. And if they went, I, you know, this would have been um, quite a wake-up call. Right. Uh, any nickels that they had, they had to rub together for warmth. Well, and I'll tell you something else about that, Cooper. Yeah, I was, what's up? I was reading that 
there was a real rise in this genre right around the time of the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who have kind of speculated that the reason for that is because when things are going okay and you have, a, I guess, a few dimes in your pocket, you're not as given to believing in the fantastic, that monster movies aren't as attractive. But when things are down, when you're having trouble making sense of the world, you're a little bit more willing to consider things like Frankenstein. And <laughs> which John came out the same year. Right. Which, yeah, which were all out in that same year and were, by all accounts, blockbusters, which really doesn't make any sense when you consider, heck, where were they getting money to go to the show? Right. Wow. That really delves into the into the psyche of American cinema goers. That's really interesting. I never I've never heard of that. Before. The uh, the more kind of laxed your mindset gets, the more you get, I guess you are prone to kind of being swayed to flights of fancy, if anything, you know, especially in monster movies. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, and you know, this genre, I also think maybe allows filmmakers to get away with more than you do in your standard setting, you know, hence, I mean, hence the wire bat work. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You can, you can take some more chances. Right. Um, so what's what's your experience with this movie? I know that you were, said you were a fan, but and I know that you'd seen it before, but what was your first real experience with this movie? Well, I'll tell you, I really come from a place where I love the book. Okay, and, yeah. And very interested in both this book and Frankenstein when I was you know younger and in high school. And, and those were two books that kind of set off a love of reading for me. And so obviously later it's caught up to the film. I think that just the story, it's a great story. It's a captivating oh, yeah. story. There are so many different angles that you can take. And of course, we've had numerous films that delve into vampire lore, including most recently, you know, the runaway teenage hit Twilight. <laughs> I mean, so this is a captivating story. Yeah. Um, and so I guess that's kind of that's kind of my general interest in it. And in, in studying up, because I didn't want to be a loser on your podcast. <laughs> no I'm, way, man. I'm a, I'm a lawyer by trade, and I realize as a lawyer, there's quite a few other reasons to be interested in this. In the film Renfield, he starts off by showing... The lease. You know, you know he's showing him his paperwork. His, right. This property transaction that he's trying to settle in London. I found out that part of the reason that the the film was based on the play that was going around at this time and not the book is because of some issues that the movie Nos Nosferatu had run into because they had come out seven years earlier and had right. not contacted the Stoker family. And so, ah, were, so they probably ran into some copyright issues. I'm so sure. The Stoker family sued them yeah. <laughs> for that. And of course, uh, Lugosi's family, after he had passed on, Universal kept using his likeness, kept using Dracula. It was a big winner for him. And they sued because they weren't getting any royalties off of that. And it was a kind of a landmark case in California. So <laughs> as a lawyer, there's a whole lot of entry points. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm glad you were able to make that connection. That's cool. Yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the burden of being a cultural icon, I suppose, as, as Bela Lugosi certainly was. He was a very domineering uh, presence on screen, you know. And uh, it's it's hard to shake the it's hard to imagine any type of uh, presence other than his. You know, he is the iconic Dracula. That's and, right. Uh, and I don't know if you had this takeaway, but I felt like in his delivery, um, there was something of a Twin Peaks sort of quality to it, where it was all um, almost all non sequiturs. Like he he was he was setting the tone for the dialogue, and it may have been in response to what you were saying, but more times than not, it was just. What whatever he, whatever he felt like. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, you, you mentioned Twin Peaks. You and uh, you and my friend Dan from the very first episode of Unquote, we get along famously. He is a huge <laughs> Twin Peaks fan. But yeah, just just the kind of not not so much deadpan, but just like you said, non sequitur. You know, I never drink wine. You know, yeah. it's just it, it, it was a response, but was it really dignified? I don't know. It was just very very strange. <laughs> but that added to the that added to the mythos of him. You know, so the line in question that was on AFI's list was listen to them the children of the night what music they make. this is actually i wrote this down this was one of the first lines that came very early in, in the films i've done so far most of them have been you know midway or even at the tail end the last line of dialogue this one was like 10 minutes in i want to say um, i think you're right i think it was within his first hundred words i oh, mean wow. at this point we haven't heard him say much of anything mm-hmm and this is one of the ways we get introduced to who he plays. <laughs> this is this is the uh, this is the exact phrasing that Renfield is very sure of his <laughs> wariness to be in a castle like that. Um, he he definitely knew he was in some deep deep stuff when he heard that because you know the, the 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 mind wanders, the myths start to come true, come to the forefront of your mind. Like oh, this is this guy really a vampire? You know. But I thought that was really interesting. Did you have any other lines that you thought were maybe as equally impactful, if not more so, in the film? There were, well, it's this movie is notable, and, and I think when we're trying to pitch it to our friends, we should point out that it is a one-liner a minute. I mean, yeah. it really is. There, there is stuff that jumps out all throughout the film. Even if you haven't seen it, you've heard some of these. Oh, yeah. And uh, which which makes sense because it's it's was taken from not only you know its source material the book which is very good prose if you've never read Bram Stoker's Dracula but also you know play productions play productions also have very good prose in them too but yeah what were you what were you saying well and you know you, that was one thing I wanted to mention Lugosi he was actually the person who was playing Dracula in the play kind of interestingly and then the producer didn't want to use him you mentioned what an interesting kind of character he was he right. he kind of lobbied hard for it and took a pay cut in order to get the <laughs> job and, you know another observation i have about his delivery is i thought that as a kid growing up watching sesame street that the count was a little bit heavy-handed with his accent uh-huh. re-watching this film from <laughs> <Hansen>. spot <laughs> on it's, it's exactly the way he did it but there were several lines right after he says the quote that we're talking about today Renfield notices that the Count walks right through a spider web, and he gets caught in it. Ah, yes. He turns to him and says, the spider spinning his web for the unwary fly. Yes. What is the life, Mr. Renfield? So if he didn't get the message that things had just gotten weird a second ago. He certainly knew now. Now he knows. (laughs) Um, Of course, you get from Van Helsing that great statement, the superstition of yesterday can become the scientific reality of today. I had that written down as well. That was one of my favorites in the movie. Which felt kind of profound, you know, in the moment. And when I talk about the comedy in this film, there's this really important moment towards the end of the movie where Van Helsing cannot see Dracula's reflection in the cigarette box that Jonathan is holding. Dracula, you know, Van Helsing rather than subtly trying to point this out to the other people in the room, (laughs) naturally walks over and says, would you look at your reflection? Dracula smacks the box. It's a real awkward moment. And before he leaves, he says, I dislike mirrors. Van Helsing can explain. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's perfect. Yeah. That's a hilarious. So, so confident in his charms, his power, his mystique. Oh, 
I'll let I'll let the main uh, the main hero explain why me the villain can't look at mirrors. It's all good, you know. Also, in what world do you just allow a fella that is does not cast a reflection to just walk out the door <laughs> without anybody doing anything? Just a bunch of guys standing around saying, "Well, you know, I guess we'll hear from the doctor on why that's so." <laughs> but uh, yeah, I had uh, one line. Both both of those that you mentioned were very good. Um, and this one, this goes back to exactly what you said. If you haven't seen the movie. You've heard the prose and you've heard the lines before. There are a few worse things awaiting men than death. When he's on the balcony and the, when they're watching the play, that's been there's been iterations of that, you know, throughout the years in film before. I know people have heard that type of line before. Very good, and you know, you, you're capturing a string there where every line was notable. When right. he's talking to the young ladies and he's sort, you know, he's kind of introducing himself to London. He he is. He's definitely being philosophical about his condition, mm-hmm. and, uh, and which fit his character perfectly because he was the the Nos, the original Nosferatu was what it was Orlock. Orlock. You know, he, you know, he's he was very hard to look at. Let's let's not split hairs here. But this guy had the charm of a nobleman. You know, he's very well spoken. His his foreign accent was alluring. You know, and I thought that was a very very interesting contrast. Well, it's one of the notable differences in the book, too. You know, Nosferatu, of course, that, that was more in keeping with the way Stoker wrote the character. The right. character was hideous in the book. And yet here, you know, debonair, kind of a dark James Bond. <laughs> I think in that same little thing where he was talking, doesn't he? isn't that when he says, to die, to be really dead would be glorious? Right. They feel like, well, that's kind of a weird thing to say when we're talking about losing so much. Oh, well, he's handsome. <laughs> yeah. Just kind of shrug it off. The women, the women are smitten, so, I mean, you know, he could, he could, you know, be reciting Japanese backwards, and they probably still think it was very, very charming in some form or fashion. It shows you how much the dating rituals have changed, too, because, I, I mean, look, yes, he's slicked back. Yes, he looks like a count. Yes, he's exotic. He's from Romania. But give me a break. <laughs> that that act that shtick is not going to work in today's culture but they walk away both women mention how striking he is they're kind of interested <laughs> in him our poor nancy or lucy i'm sorry lucy who later becomes a vampire herself she was really excited about meeting him and, and i was thinking this shows you how little i know about women that that interaction <laughs> got her all you know hot and bothered Brandon, so you're telling me that if I go out on a date tomorrow and I don't wear a penguin tail coat and put about nine pounds of pomade in my hair and slick it back, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make any good first impressions. Cooper, I'm here to help. That This movie did come out in nineteen thirty one and I kinda wanted to focus on just a, a smaller line. Um, that we both mentioned, it was superstition of yesterday can become the scientific reality of the day. And I, I've, I've been trying to frame more about the time period that this came out in. There was, you know, several big events in science going on as well. And I just, I thought that line was so much more potent looking back on it now because you had, in 1931, you had Einstein and uh, Edward Hubble teaming up at Caltech, you know, for all the big things to come. And you also had, um, the Nobel Prize in, in uh, physiology that year was given to some foreign guy with who discovered some type of uh, respiration enzymes. You know, all, just, just all these amazing things on the micro level 
that we had no idea and would probably explain away to um, myth prior. But you know, what what do you think about that? This is this is kind of a whole part of I, I suppose expanding yourself to being willing to accept something like Dracula as a good piece of entertainment. It is fantastic. It is different. It is. Um, it does push the boundaries of what you might be otherwise willing to believe. And so the whole concept of watching horror films or science fiction films, it does sort of require you to open up. And this was a point in America where I think, you know, like I said a second ago, they were more willing to open up. I mean, and, and as you brought out, it was a time of invention, both scientific and otherwise. And right. so I don't know. I, I, I don't want to go too far about, what role film plays. But I mean, I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't say that it can be a, a real window into what's going on. And at this time, I think America was really willing to believe something because it was, it, we were at a tough place. And so interesting that that line coincides at a point that you're mentioning where we started to make some breakthroughs and in innovation. And of course, those would serve us pretty well about 10 years down the road when World War II started. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you hear the phrase "art imitates life" a lot. I guess in in the very basis form, sometime uh, that's the best way to educate people is through entertainment. You know, it's just like, yeah, this is still fantastical and and silly in some parts, made maids feigning notwithstanding. But you know, this is this is what's going on now. This is what's happening in the world. Um, who did you watch this with anybody, or did you go it solo? No, I, I did the absolute creepiest thing you can do with a horror movie and just watched it by myself <laughs> in the dark. I hope you and I can appreciate the fact that, boy, a lot's happened since 1931. <laughs> it <laughs> in has. Ways. But, you know, I, I still I still go back to this is, in, in many respects, a fundamental film for how we scare each other and how we talk about scary things. And it does focus a lot on concepts like the one you just mentioned. Van Helsing is a person who is urging others not to take this threat lightly, to recognize that, you know, you sort of brush this off at your own uh, at your own peril. And I don't know. It's, it's a it's interesting. Horror movies make us think about all sorts of things. But it's interesting to watch this in the context of watching modern uh, horror films and recognize we're still talking about the same concept. We just right. have better tools to get the story told. Yeah, exactly. The basic human emotion, you know, fear, love. Uh, you know, even a little hope in there. And I, I thought it was interesting what you said uh, a couple seconds ago about building on the foundations of what we know today. And um, just the simple fact that the, I thought the movie was brilliant in the fact that it took elements from a bygone era. Well, not bygone era, but maybe just a few years ago, silent film. Right. Yeah. And so those very intense close-ups of that icy gaze that Bela Lugosi had, I, I feel like those were just kind of a small throwback to, you know, no dialogue, uh, uh, tense music in the background. It was just a static shot of him staring at it. And that's, that was that silly. Yes, but still a little unnerving. Like you said, it builds on that very, very deep seated fear that we all have of just being, being stared down, you know, which, which one of us is going to look away first, that type of thing. You know, I think you've hit on something there. They did a lot more physically than we are accustomed to. I mean, there, there was so much of this story that was told. It, it, I know in, in the day of um, Netflix and Hulu and uh, where we can just devour entire series and we may do it while we're 
doing data entry or whatever <laughs> heck else we've got to do with our lives. We're not necessarily looking at the screen. You cannot watch a film from 1931 and not look at the screen because a lot of things are happening that you do not hear. Well said. Wow. Ghost, yeah. He does a lot with his body. And some of it was really big. Like, I think we might call it overacting. <laughs> You're talking about the cape swipe, the classic yeah, cape swipe? He would move. It was so <laughs> awkward. And his arm kind of came out from him. And I noticed a couple of times it sort of, especially when he took action, he really took his time getting in there. Yes. You don't necessarily do that now in our films. You got to watch it. And it's very physical. I mean, you're right. This is a this is a great transition movie between the silent films and 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 talkies. And I guess that fellow, the director, I'm looking for his name now, but he apparently uh, L A E M M L E something like that. Something yeah, Lamel, I believe. He, he cut his teeth, I believe, on silent films, and mm. that was that was sort of his thing. And and they brought him in to direct this movie, and it's very clear that. Part of what they were doing was sort of preparing viewers for what this new thing was going to be, because it has its foot firmly planted in the old world. And yeah. um, and uh, what did you think about the uh, how it was scored and the music? Well, it was all they stole everything. It's not like what we're accustomed to. <laughs> Nowadays, we're accustomed to a very customized uh, score for the movie. Mm-hmm. Here, they didn't actually score it for the film itself. Um, it wasn't until, you know, one of the contemporary folks came in and did a score for it in the re-edition that it got outside of the world of Schubert and Tchaikovsky and Wagner. <laughs> but if you'll notice, you're hearing parts of Swan Lake. Right. You're hearing, you know, Wagner. You're hearing some of these Schubert themes that we're accustomed to hearing not only here, but also in like Westerns. <laughs> it was they, they were kind of picking and choosing for their soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, Glass, Philip Glass actually scored it right that was in that was in 1998 he he teamed up with the chronos uh chronos quartet and they they rescored the entire film and they did a marvelous job think about the ending as abrupt as it was so there are so many things that we don't get resolved and i mean you and i have talked about these quotes but i mean there are characters renfield we i I would have been perfectly happy with a 24 part sitcom solely (laughs) about renfield his the course of his life in this thing is great and we don't get any resolution about him right any resolution i mean martin who was this kind of really incompetent custodian worker <laughs> who, who just it was not only incompetent, but also extremely insensitive about the folks who were having difficulties. <laughs> so you're talking about the, the new season premiere of Marty and Wren where they're bunk mates and they uh, stay in a house together, right? Does it not write itself? <laughs> it I mean, really it does. So we, so we get Martin talking a little bit and he's having this weird encounter with the maid who had already fainted weirdly, but the ending itself, it's abrupt in a way that I think was acceptable for their time period. I think folks who are watching it that we, you know, you and I are going to talk people into watching it. They're going to get to that part of the movie and they're probably going to curse us when they text us about it (laughs) because it was almost too abrupt because 
not only is it strange in the sense that you don't really get a wind down on some of the main characters, it's also abrupt in the sense that Van Helsing says that he's going to stay down there in the basement to take care of something, and we have no idea what it is. Right. We don't know what the heck he's doing down there, and he's holding something. I don't even, I, I think, I thought it was the stake, but then I look closer at it. It looks like some type of weird animal husbandry piece of equipment. I don't know what the heck it is. It's just some piece of weird metal. He's standing down there in the basement saying everything's fine. The two young lovers are walking up the stairs. <laughs> Roll credit. It's pretty abrupt. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it is pretty abrupt. I don't, there, there was a sequel, but Bella Lugosi didn't play the, uh, the titular character in the sequels. He played it in the Abbott and Costello version many years later, but, um, <laughs> Which, what a say? slap in the face. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they really should have sued him over that, over uh, uh, over defamation of character, if I can use a lowering term, to give him full credit that he want, that he needed. Yeah, it, it was very strange because I, I even I – was, I was watching it streaming online. I even backed it up to make sure I didn't accidentally hit the next scene button or anything like that um, as it got towards the end. And then I, I looked it up online. I was like, yep, that's how it ends. So – I I think you're right. I mean, obviously, Mina was the sort of central character through the second half of the movie and her dealings with Dracula and her sort of possession, whatever you want to call it. She was being converted to a vampire. Right. Towards the end of the movie. I suppose one of the, the real relief points there in the conclusion is that she was released from that process. Mm hmm. And so I, that's the one bit of resolution that you get that is very clear. I can only hope that my fellow lawyer, Renfield, was released too, because we don't know. <laughs> well, what a rough road for that poor guy. Your, your brother in arms, I understand. You know, that was, to, to, to really cap off your, your comedy series of Dracula, that tumble down the stairs took about eight seconds longer than it should have. <laughs> yeah, and, and I guess I, I guess we're, we're left to to think that there's a possibility that he's dead. I guess I'm just kind of still lighting a candle for Renfield. I think he survived that long tumble down what looked to be very hard stone stairs. <laughs> and, uh, and, and in regards to that, what a, what a marvelous job for the set pieces, you know, I, yeah. uh, I even, even back then the budget was, I'm sure adjusted for inflation now is probably somewhere in the millions, but $355,000 for the budget back then, you know, and uh, they still did a masterful job with set design and everything. No, it, it's worth watching. It's it's uh, it's it is a great film. It it is a, a seminal film, especially if you have any interest in horror. But also, as you mentioned, just for kind of getting an insight into the era. Absolutely. Uh, so it, it's worth watching. I, I'm glad to have had a chance to think about it and talk about it some. Yeah, I'm glad you were able to uh, give me so many awesome insights, and uh, I'm I'm glad you did your uh, your lawyering uh, justice with watching the film. <laughs> glad you got a lot of uh, good material to use. But uh, Brandon, I thank you for your time, man. It was really a really enjoyable talking to you. Well, it was a lot of fun, Cooper. Thanks for having me. No problem. Brandon was an awesome guest, and we certainly had a lot of material to uh, <clears throat> sink our teeth into. Oh boy, I want to thank you for joining me this week on Unquote. Musical considerations provided by bensound.com, high-quality intro and outro music, Friedrich Chopin's Preludes, Opus 28, Number 4, Foreigner's Hot-Blooded, the John Somerset remix, and Philip Glass and the Kronos Quartet performing the Dracula soundtrack live with the movie at La Nuit de Foivier 2010. 
Join me next week when I tackle another one of AFI's quotes from their top 100 movie quotes list. Until then, I'm Cooper Powers, and keep the film rolling. And now, a little unquote post-roll. Enjoy. I can be your resident lawyer on the uh, on the podcast. <laughs> once I once I burn through the list, I'm just gonna start doing it freehand, and we're just gonna see what's gonna happen. And I'll, right. I'll have you on speed dial, counselor. We could always do a little side uh, a little side series on uh, lawyer films. <laughs> after you blow up, after you do your hundred, oh, and wow. likes it, then you could do a little <laughs> side series. You know, something for the kids. Yeah, sure, a little, sure. little lawyer series. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you are the most optimistic person on this Skype call right now, I think. What should what would the title of the miniseries be? Throw throw the book at him or something? It can't be too cliche. It can't be like drop the gavel or anything like that. Throw the book at him in the bad. Throw the let's book think at him? about it. Let's 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 put that one at the top of our whiteboard. Okay. And then we'll we'll build back from that. Sounds good.